Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm speaking to a modern day legend, one of the best composers of the modern age. <laughs> he's too humble to admit it. Uh, he's done Doom, Prey, Killer Instinct. <laughs> like to welcome Mick Gordon. How you doing, man? Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me, Reese. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Oh, likewise. We've had a bit of a... Uh, Problems back and forth due to my spam folder not getting your replies, so apologies for that. But hey, we're going to have it. Thanks for persevering. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. We were just speaking before the show about Killer Instinct, so I think that's a good place to start off. Because obviously everybody talks to you about Doom. I mean, it seems like that's your magnum opus at this point. But I, I do like to talk about Killer Instinct because like, I think that really shows your diversity as a composer. Because you've done so much different stuff within that game, right? I mean, you've got the stuff like Cinder's theme, which is very different to, say, Saber Wolf's theme. So, like, what was your approach going into that? Yeah, so I was, as we were just chatting before the show, I was a huge fan of Killer Instinct right from a, uh, from a child, right? And um, so uh, Killer Instinct, I felt, was kind of really in my DNA at that point. I really, really understood the game. Um, the funny story about that is when I got onto the project, I had no idea it was actually Killer Instinct. I got an email one day from a guy named Jed. Jed was the audio director on Killer Instinct. He's an absolute genius. He's one of the best audio directors I've ever worked with. Um, and he just sent me an email one day. I literally just got an email. I was sitting there and I got this email popped up and it said, Hey Mick, uh, my name's Jed. I work for a company called Double Helix Games and we're working on a fighting game. We'd like to talk to you about doing the music. And I'm like, yeah, cool, man. This sounds great. Fighting games, you know, I, I, I'm sure sounds fun. Um, and, uh, I had literally no idea. And each project when you're, um, so sorry, let me back up a little bit. When you're working on a video game, um, a lot of the times the name of the game isn't decided until marketing needs to kick in and announce the game. So each oh. game that you're working on has a code name, a project name it's called. And Killer Instinct's project name, I didn't actually, I don't know, I might not even be able to say it publicly. <laughs> I might be under NDA for that. So I better won't just to, just to uh, be safe. But enough. anyway, it had, it had like a, just a single word that was the fighting game. And it was, honestly, it's, it's nothing that means anything. These things are specifically chosen because they don't mean anything. So I was just aware of the project name. And um, uh, I spoke to Jen. He's like, yeah, we're working on this fighting game. It's really cool. It's really going to be like, you know, focused on high level play and combos. And um, it's going to be a launch title for the new Xbox. And, um, you know, the music's going to be really varied and um, we want it to be really exciting and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, do you want to put some some music together for it? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. Um, and Normally what happens is you get some captures of gameplay. So this is like a video recording of somebody in the office playing the game. Um, and you get videos of that because it saves on data. They don't have to send you the whole game. You can just get a video of somebody playing through it. Right. And so they sent me some like really preliminary footage of this game, which had the project name. And, um, and it booted up and there was the announcer saying like, ready. And uh, there was Jago and Jago and they're like fighting. And I'm like... Oh my God, this is finally like a new Killer Instinct game, man. I've been waiting for this for so long. So I was just like blown away just by seeing the Ready and the Jago and the Jago. I knew this was going to be Killer Instinct. So um, yeah, I, I put some music together for it. I remember I worked really, really hard on this demo and I, I did all these really interesting recordings and I made it really fast and I got my seven string guitar out and I had some cool riffs and things in there and, um, and I packaged it all up really nicely. And, and I got back to Jed and I said, hey man, so this is the music that I'd really like to write for your game. I think it's I think it's really cool. I love the fact that you guys are doing this. Please hire me for the job. And he replied saying, "Yeah, that's totally not what we want at all. We really don't like this at all. Um, oh, you've you've failed the demo." <laughs> so, 
Um, so, and that's honestly, that's quite common. I failed more demo um, calls, they're called demo calls, than I have like worked on games. I, I really? fail demo calls all the time. Yeah, I'm notoriously bad at it. Um, so, anyway, yeah, so. Um, uh, I got back to Jed and I was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry it was off the mark. Like, you know, let me try again. You know, let's just have a conversation about um, where it went wrong and what you want it to be. And I remember having a conversation with him and he said, uh, Mike, the creative director, said that he wanted the music to be badass, right? Just badass stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And what I'd learned early on is that it's really important to find a singular singular concept that you can measure every decision by. I can go into more on that in a little bit if you like. Yeah. But so when he said badass, all of a sudden I had this like totem pole that I could measure every single decision that I made against. And that when you have that word, it influences everything from the key of the song to the tempo of the song, to the instrument choices, to the riffs, to the melodies. Everything had to be badass. And I'm like, well, what's badass? Well, we'll get some guitars in there, but it won't be such a focus. We'll get some cool percussion in there. We'll get some throat singing in there because that's pretty cool. That's badass sounding, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I put another demo together and sent that off. And they were like, yes, this is it. Finally, we finally got a sound that we kind of like. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of how that, how that came about. And that demo, that second demo that I, I did pretty much became the Jago theme with just a little bit of extra polish. Yeah, well, obviously it's well documented at this point that you went to Tibet, right, to learn throat singing. So Help. I didn't go to Tibet. It's actually like difficult. That's a funny like myth that sort of come about um, oh, right. sort of here. It's a Tibetan temple, um, but it wasn't in Tibet. These are like Tibetan, you know, Buddhist temples and things that you find around. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's so you actually... went to one. You went to one in Brisbane, did you? Mm, yes, yes, yes. Okay. It's so actually, how long? How I... long did it take you to learn it? Really, it's quite hard. It's really quite difficult. So <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's, it is. <laughs> it's not naturally the same as how you would do any other vocal thing, especially from like a Western culture. It's not a expression you typically use with your, uh, with your throat. So you've got to kind of learn to get that control under there. And I, I think I practiced for about a week. And it's really interesting when you've got like a um, – you know how it's meant to sound in your brain and you just start trying to do things. It's amazing how physically your body just sort of starts to realign itself. And over time with enough practice, you kind of end up getting there. Um, so yeah, with enough practice, I got it. Can you do it? Can you throw a sing? Nah, I mean, I tried. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to do it. Because <laughs> what do you have to, do you have to push on your uh, throat while you're doing it or how do you, Would you like with your hand or something yeah yeah is that how no, you no. like no 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 because you got to hit like no. a certain octave don't you it's a yes. certain yeah so what you're doing is using your throat to create a subharmonic um with your uh from from what you're singing so you're singing like la that's kind of where your voice is singing but yeah. the, the throat singing is down there. And it's literally the same position of your uh, voice box. I'm, I'm singing the same note, but you're creating a subharmonic below that with your throat. And there's people that can do incredible things with that. I'm like nothing. I'm a little grasshopper compared to what some people can do with this sort of stuff. If you've seen proper um, Tibetan singers do it, they can also create higher harmonics with the shape of their mouth. And they can hold a drone underneath like I did there and then use higher harmonics to sing melodies on top of that. So literally sing two notes at once, which is mind-blowing. 
What? Really? Wow. Well, you're making me want to go learn it now. <laughs> so what, what was the hardest piece you, to work on, on Killer Instinct, do you think? Oh, man. I think it, Killer Instinct was interesting because the, 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 the pace was quite heavy. Yeah. We had a few months to get together Jago, and Jago was used as a test bed to create the interactive music system that the entire game would work on. So once we set that framework down, um, we knew that that framework that we came up for with Jago could be applied to the, the subsequent characters that were coming along. For those of you who are not familiar with Killer Instinct, Killer Instinct, when it came out, came with a new kind of um, a way of purchasing the game, which nobody was really doing at the, at the time, but it's become a lot more popular now. And it was where you could play Jago for free on day one, if you wanted more characters, you could buy like a character pack and that would give you more characters to play with. And then there was also like a season pass where you could you could buy the whole season of characters, which at that time I think was eight characters, six or eight characters. Mm. So um, what that meant though was that on the development side, we needed to essentially conceptualize, uh, write, um, design, record, mix, master um, a character's theme a month. So every four weeks we needed to do that, um, which is, is quite a pace when it's kind of technically involved and every single character's theme is, is so drastically musically different from each other. So I think that as, a, as its whole was probably the most challenging thing is adhering to that each month. But at the same time, it was kind of like creatively interesting as well. So when I finished, oh gosh, I can't remember. I think I finished, I remember finishing Jago and I can't remember who I went on to next. It might've been Saberwolf. It was either Saberwolf or Glacius. Maybe it was Glacius. But anyway, those two themes were like completely different to Jago. And not only that, but they were drastically different from each other. Yeah. One had me recording a string quartet in the UK and another one had me making like sort of electronic music here uh, in Australia. So that was the, the like drastic stylistic changes were happening pretty rapidly. Yeah, because how do you find working under deadlines? Do you find it hard to do? Because I imagine you have all these ideas and you've got to kind of just try and form this one piece even and just stop yourself from going too far, I suppose. The truth about deadlines is that it's, it's too easy to make the assumption that when you hear the word deadline, you think that somebody says, hey, Reese, can you make this piece of music by Friday? And Reese says, yeah, no worries. I can do that. Not a problem. The trouble is they'll tell you that on Monday. You start writing music on Monday and then you have an update progress thing with them on Tuesday where they tell you something completely different. Now they want it slightly different. And can you give it probably early on Friday instead of late Friday? And you're like, yeah, sure. No worries. I can do that. So you go back and you change your approach again. You start sort of adapting to that. Then you meet with them again on Wednesday and they say, look, I know we told you this on Monday and we told you something different on Tuesday, but today we're going to tell you something completely different. What we actually want is you to work with this incredible musician that, you know, has nothing to do with a game or, or whatever. Basically, they throw a red herring at you right at the last minute. Um, and you're like, yeah, okay, you know, there's only two days left, but I think I can pull it off. And they're like, that's the thing. We actually need it Thursday afternoon now. So this is what typically tends to happen with deadlines is that things start like crunching up together. And that's when you start like having to pull all nighters and stuff to get it, to get it done. Um, and, and I think that's just something that's inherent with games. It's not bad management or anything that it's just that the idea that seemed solid on Monday 
turns out that might not have worked by Tuesday. By Wednesday, that was definitely the wrong idea, and now we do need to do something completely different to still get it done. So that's the truth about working on deadlines, is that it's not always so super structured. It can be um, all over the place. Because mm. I know when I studied audio engineering and I did all-nighters like with projects, you know, I'd mix something, but obviously your ears get tired, right? So you can go away, come back to it, and it's like, oh, this sounds horrible. Mm. So like, uh, would that often happen when you were doing overnighters to try and finish this, this stuff? Uh, I've done... The worst I've ever done, if we want to go into crunch stories, the worst <laughs> I've ever done was four days straight. Uh, and I'm not no even No sleep. No, well, at the end, I was napping every half hour just to stop the, <clears throat> the MIDI notes on the screen started to crawl across the screen. I was like, yeah, this is not good. Um, what happened there is one of those sort of situations where it needed to get done in a hurry. And I had an international flight booked for the Friday. And so I, I couldn't delay it any further because I was going to be flying in the air for 20 hours or something like that. And then I was going to be landing into Las Vegas of all places. Um, and so uh, I absolutely, there was no possibility that I could have done it any other time than that. And again, sometimes you get in on Monday to start working on it or whatever, and the computer crashes or this weird Windows update occurs that just sort of ruins your entire audio interface. And then this cool idea that you had in your head just turns out it doesn't work. And then... You know what I mean? Like you just, it's just an absolute cacophony of, of mistakes and, and errors and problems that seem to pop up. And that was just one of those cases. I didn't start the week out intending to work four days straight, but it was just, that's how it went because of the, the craziness. Yeah. It was, it was pretty, pretty rough. Oh man. That's unfortunate <laughs> to hear, but yeah, I can, I can imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, but um, you were asking, sorry, I totally oh. ignored your question. Um, you were asking about ears and things like that. Um, yeah, you have to take breaks, I think. You have to. We've all done that, and I'm glad you mentioned that. Is that. You think you finish at nighttime, you're like, man, this thing's banging. It just sounds absolutely perfect. And then you go away for a little bit, and you come back, and you're like, oh, my God, this is horrible. The worst thing, then, is when you play it on a different set of speakers, and you're like, oh, my yeah. God, this is yeah. the most worst thing I've ever heard. So, um, yeah, I like to try and mix up the work environment a bit, so I'll listen to it on different speakers. Taking breaks really helps. Um, I have some really good, like, uh, analytical tools that can really clearly show me if something's going wrong that I can't quite hear, especially with regards to like phase and things like that. Um, using reference mixes is really good as well. So you can like just bounce your ears over to something else and go, oh, okay, yeah, their snare is a little bit louder than mine. Maybe I'll bring mine up a little bit or hang on, their guitars are a little bit wider than mine. I'll, I'll widen mine out a little bit. Things like that. That really helps. Yeah, because honestly, I think your mixing is just next level. Eh? It's so, <laughs> so good. Like I, I, I hear it. Because I studied it, so I know like how how much effort you put into it. I mean, a lot of people probably wouldn't because they'd probably just hear it and they're like, oh, this sounds good. But everything always sounds so full. I mean, <laughs> like Dr. Dre is like a producer like I have a lot of respect for because his mixes are so crisp and stuff. And mm. like yours is yours is similar from like a video game music standpoint. So do you do all the mastering yourself? Do you yeah, work yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So how so yeah, how much time do you spend between the mix and the mastering? It's interesting. With the mastering process, I'd say that's very little at this stage. Mm. It's um, maybe some very slight EQ adjustments. Um, and even that, if I can find out what's causing the problem, I'll go back into the mix session and change it there. Um and, and that's kind of it. I just try to get it to a level that's really good. Um, and I try to get it to a level where it's not, not destroying the transients too much and it's not making the bass do weird things and, and stuff like that. So it's just like critical listening stage. 
but there's no like super secret stuff that happens in the mastering process that makes it sound um, the way it sounds. It's uh, it's it's usually done in the mix. Um, the mixing process thing is is pretty much. It's it's interesting. I have an interesting approach to mixing. I don't believe that you can make anything work in the mix stage. I think the mix decisions are made right from the beginning, and that's down to the decision of what key the song is, what tempo it's going to be, how the arrangement works, and things like that. So um, to pick up an example to go further into that, for BFG Division, for example, yeah. that riff itself is very specifically crafted for a tight mix. Um, the most important thing in the mix is the snare drum, to me, in a, in especially in a rock or a metal track. The snare drum is the most important thing. And if you want your thing to be the loudest possible thing or the most important possible thing, you need to give it a stage or a platform where it stands on its own. And the best way to do that is ensure that whenever the snare is playing, nothing else is playing with it. So it's not another guitar hit playing with it. It's not a, uh, a kick drum playing with it at the same time or something like that. So that BFG to revision riff was literally written so there was a gap where the snare drum would be. Right? Oh. That makes sure that you're going to have a really tight mix from the beginning. From the beginning, it's there. Um, I remember the second decision I made with that track was to ensure that the key of the song was F sharp. F? Oh, God, I can't remember. F or F sharp? I can't remember. But anyway, um, that, uh, that key resonates bass frequencies really, really well. So your ears hear F, F sharp, G really, really well at sub range. So that's down like 40, 42, 43, 44, 47 hertz. That's around that. And your ear can hear that sub frequency really, really well. If you go lower than that, like if I try to make that track in D, for example, or C sharp, all of a sudden you can't get those sub frequencies. There's just literally not enough space when that bass hits for that bass frequency to, to resonate, right? So the key of the song, the tempo, the arrangement of the riff, all this stuff. And honestly, if you carve and craft your songs around this concept from the beginning, you'll end up with mixes that are a lot more sort of cleaner and crisper and punchier and things like that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I'll, I'll keep that, I'll keep that uh, <laughs> for reference in, in the future. Oh. I get Sometimes I get music to mix for bands and... Um, and they'll send me their track and it's like 200 beats per minute and everything's playing at the same time. And so, and they'll send me a reference mix of like, say, BFG Division. I'm like, it's just, it's just not possible. You've got yeah. too much going on. Yeah, it's just, it's not possible. It's, <laughs> there's no amount of like plugins that are going to fix that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can get well, it sounding good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the other thing as well is there's certain instruments that hit the same frequency range, right? So like say yeah. um, acoustic guitar and piano, sometimes they can clash in terms of the same frequency range. So yeah. I, is it, I suppose this is something you're also aware of when you're trying mm. to pick instruments to use for uh, a particular track. Yeah, so I would suggest if you're doing something for like acoustic guitar and piano, I'd say, well, what role is each instrument playing? So if the guitar is playing a higher arpeggiated part and the piano is playing bass notes, that's going to work. That'll work fine because they're different. If you're... Piano is doing some Billy Joel thing and it's bouncing around a lot and the guitar is strumming chords, all of a sudden then your guitar is more of a percussive instrument. It's more going to be low end and clicky clacky clicky clacky pick sound, right? And mm. the piano is going to be supplying the tona tonality of it. If you've got a piece of music 
where the piano and the acoustic guitar are playing identical parts, I'd start to question what's the point. Like sometimes you can make blends like that work really well. Obviously orchestral stuff does that really well if you have like a certain woodwind instrument playing the, uh, the same line as a, as a cello, for example. It just creates an interesting texture. But you're not going to get that same sort of level of, of punch with it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I always try to avoid layering for that whole purpose because I would imagine if you've got an acoustic guitar and a piano and they're playing the same thing, I do, I, what you're kind of doing there is layering the two. And I always try to say that like layering is the thing you do when you don't know what you're doing. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I'm missing something. I might start adding more stuff. Um, and really you should just sort of step, take a step back and try and assess what you're trying to achieve with each part. Um, there's other things too, like the Rick Rubin, um, produced, um, Johnny Cash album with Hurt and, and things like that on it. That's acoustic guitar and piano in a lot of those, um, tracks. Yeah. And there's interesting things they do with like widening there. Like Johnny Cash's guitar is incredibly wide and the piano does a different play, you know, finds a different spot. So yeah, um, find a place for everything and put everything in its place. Yeah. Cause what would BFG division, what you've got guitar, drums, yep. synths, bass, that's pretty much as it, isn't it? I mean, you've got in terms of the synths, you've got lower synths, and then you've kind of got the high synths as well. Like that yeah, whistle, so the, what is I it? The whistle type sine wave mm, thing. That, yeah, yeah, the melody. Yeah, the melody. The melody is an interesting one because I I threw that in at the end. I always run into this trouble where I think that a simple like I try to make the idea as simple as possible, and I think it's going to work. And I have this stupid guitar thing in my brain where I think a riff is going to be strong enough to sell a, a song. But it really is. Unless you smoke on the water or something like that, your riff's not going to sell the song. Um, you know, an average listener needs a melody, absolutely mm. needs a melody. And um, with BFG Division, I made the silly decision to um, have the, the bass and guitar parts having this slight semitone bend. So it's like... It's like bending between a semitone. And I couldn't decide what sort of harmony I wanted to, like imply over the top i'm like well it's not my minor because it's kind of boring and i don't really want to throw a major scale over it because it's kind of weird um so i was like you know what screw it i'll just put every note in the scale over the top so the goal of that was literally to write a melody with a chromatic scale it's a chromatic melody and i've seen people do like academic level analysis of that melody and they're like oh here it goes to like the diminished of the phrygian dominant thing and here's this and i'm, I'm like no it was just the goal was just to get every note in there because i didn't know what harmony i wanted to imply <laughs> <laughs> well you probably destroyed like their their hypothesis by telling them that because they probably i mean you could analyze it you could say oh, like yeah a, for sure like technically at the end it's kind of like an e7 sharp nine because of the the bass goes up to like a i think an e and then the the melody's hitting a g so you've kind of got this like you could say that the E and the G are like a, a third and a fifth of a C sharp, and it's kind of like a C sharp diminished. And then that makes sense because it's kind of like the, the dominant chord that takes you back to F sharp. Yes, it's an F sharp. Yeah. Um, so you could say that, but it's like, that's not why it was done. Yeah. Mm. Did you foresee that BFG division would become as iconic as it has? So it's interesting. When I was working on Doom, there was a really strict thing of like no guitars. They didn't want any guitars. They really wanted to shed anything from the past. Yeah. And I think... At the time, there really wasn't a lot of really good examples out there of, of scores that had done um, cool things with guitars. A lot had come to sound a bit dated or um, a bit new metal-y or, um, you know, just or a bit like retro thrash. And they were really adamant that they didn't want to do like a retro tribute with the game. So they just said like no guitars, especially Chris, the audio director. He was like, no guitars. I don't like guitarists. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. Um, so that's what led to a lot of the synth stuff. 
But as we went along, I was like, you know what, man, if we can just, if we can just get like 5% guitars in there, just like a little bit, it'll tick that box in players' minds that say, mm, is this doom or isn't it doom? And once we put a little bit in, it was like, oh no, this is working. This is kind of cool. But anyway, the funny story about that is, and why I'm mentioning that, is the first track I wrote for Doom uh, 2016, the first full track, uh, was Rip and Tear, and it was rejected. Um, they knocked oh. it back. They said, no, this is, this is definitely not what, what we want here at all. And so I kind of retreated from that and put it aside and then went and did all these other tracks that are a little bit more like, I don't know, avant-garde or a bit weird or like flesh and metal and stuff that sort of bounce around all over the place. It never really settles into a solid groove for 16 bars or whatever. It's kind of all over the place, right? And um, right at the end, uh, BFT Division was one of the last tracks I did. And uh, I was, I purposely held off sending it to them because I thought they were going to reject it as well. Um, and so I sent it in kind of last minute and they were like, okay, I guess we'll kind of put it in. Yeah, no, maybe that'll work. And they never said anything about it. They never said they liked it or a fit or anything like that at all. It was just kind of put into the game. And then we had one level right at the end. It was a hell level and we needed a piece of music and there was literally no time. There was like two days left and they're like, look, we really need music for this level and, and we don't know what to do. And what do you want? And I'm like, well, you know what? We've got that first track that we rejected. So maybe let's just throw that in there and we can get it over the line and that'll, that'll do it. And they're like, yeah, that'll be cool. And that was Rip and Tear. So, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but as uh, I said, like game development, it kind of bounces all over the place, game development. You're not, not really ever sure what's going to work or what's not going to work. So it's it, easy at the end to yeah. look back and go, oh, yeah, cool. We got to a good result. That was intentional. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. It was like, like when you're making games, you're playing a bad game for like two years. It's just nothing works. Everything breaks. Nothing feels good. And it's really not until like the far last sort of few days even that it starts to feel like a video game. It's quite, quite miraculous. <laughs> Yeah, so did you have any oversight over the actual implementation of where it's put in the game or or did you just not know and then you just see it? So I set um, the the schedule got pretty crunched up and they didn't have the time to um, do video captures for me. Um, it takes a long time for somebody to record like an hour of gameplay and then send it over. That can be a few hours out of their time. And normally mm. they have these wonderful people in QA that do it for me. But at that time, at the end of the project, they're um, making sure that the game doesn't crash or set your Xbox on fire. So, um, so they didn't have time to do it. So I already kind of had a bit of an idea about what the game looked like and felt like, and a few trailers had been out by then. Um, so I was doing that. I always set my music up in WY, so I always do the interactivity aspect of it. Um, and I make sure that I get any parameters from the team that, that we need to change music at certain times. And I set it all up on my end and I can test it there, but I can't test it so much in the game. So it's always set up to be interactive anyway. So they can just literally grab the WYS files and plug it in and do whatever they need to do with it. That's it. Um, so I was doing that, but I, I had no idea what that level looked like even at that stage, that hell level I was just talking about with rip and tear in it. All right. Was there uh, much pressure on your end? I mean, because obviously Doom comes out. It's a huge hit. It wins all these awards, particularly in the music department. I mean, you performed at uh, the Game Awards as well. I mean, obviously, it really put you on the map. And then obviously, there's a sequel. Were you worried at all? Like, how am I going to meet these expectations? Or were you just, who cares? I mean, you just go for broke. I think like 
Every day you just turn up and do the best that you can, really. That's my goal for everything is you just turn up and do the best that you possibly can regardless. So um, it's interesting when there's a certain level of pressure and expectation there that people want it to be just as good as the previous one, but you can't really let that sort of cloud your judgment. What was really clear on Doom Eternal was that the gameplay itself was going to be very different. Um, well, not very different. I don't want to say it like that, but it was going to be a lot more like resource management and um, very tricky, very difficult to play. And so... When the first pieces of music uh, that I was putting together started getting into the game, it actually wasn't working. It was actually like too much. It was getting a bit too distracting. Um, it was just, I remember the first track I put together was like really quick. It was about 264 beats per minute. It was like really, really fast. Like really, really, really quick. And when we put that into the game in a really challenging level that was halfway through the game and, you know, there was so much going on in the game that the player had to focus on the music was actually just getting annoying. Like it might've been a cool track on its own, but it was just annoying in the game. It was just frustrating uh, the QA department. And so everybody was like, it's not working. We've got to try something else. And I think it's tempting in that stage to be like, you know, those blocks of the pressure that you have, you know, might start influencing you a certain way, but you really have to kind of say like, what's going to do best for the game. You need to kind of shed all that pressure and just focus on what's going to uh, work out best. And that's why a lot more of the music in Doom Eternal is sort of slower groove-based stuff. Um, stuff like me talk that's a lot slower, that right? It's a lot slower and sort of groovier. And that was purposeful because it was almost like it allowed the player to make their cognitive decisions in between the beats, right? So that way they could process all the information of the game that they needed without this crazy music kind of trying to get in their way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Man, there's such a science to it, isn't there? Such a science to it. Like, instead of just people just jamming. It's interesting talking to different composers because they have such different methods. I imagine there's so much stuff that you wrote that ended up on the cutting room floor. Like, mm. so much material. Yes. Well, what, ha what happens to it? Do you have it? Does id Software have it? Like, um, could you release it? Are you allowed to release it in terms of because of ownership? Do you own it or do they own it? Generally, generally, it depends on whatever contracts you come up with. So um, typically, sometimes they try to get a hold of that stuff because it helps them if something happens along the way. Um, you know, it's like an insurance policy would be the polite way of putting yeah, yeah. it. So that way they've got something that they can get it over the line with. So they, they typically try to keep a hold of, of all of it. Um, the thing with, with working on a project is a lot of this stuff is done really, really rapidly. Like people would be surprised at how quick this stuff gets done sometimes. Once the wheels get moving, it, it needs to happen really, really quickly. And the way, one of the methods that you use to get stuff done quickly is to get like mock-ups and ideas down as quick as possible and to get that over to the team as quick as possible. And these might only be 10, 20 seconds of stuff. And you can tell within 10, 20 seconds whether a song's going to work or not. Well, you should be able to. Basically, if you can't mm. get your point across in 10 or 20 seconds, you know it's not a good enough idea. The, the idea is not strong enough or not refined enough. Um, so you'll do a lot of that. You'll do a lot of like just sending them over stuff. And then it might be six weeks later, they'll come back and they'll say, hey, you know that like, you know, death battle number six that you did. Can you do another pass on that and expand on that? And you're like, okay, cool. And you don't even remember what that was and you open it up and check it out the session. You're like, okay, I know what I was doing here and you kind of expand on it and, and it kind of goes from there. Mm. Yeah. 
Because I know in Doom Eternal, you did this remix of uh, Into Sandy City. The do 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 Yeah. Was that was was that planned longer? Was that just no. a little idea that you threw down? Yeah. Was that was that e- was never even meant to be released. That was never even meant to be released. The um, that was actually rejected by someone. Um, <laughs> and um, so my plan for that track was that I really, really wanted the the game to kind of have throwbacks to Doom 2, the original Doom 2, as much as possible. And there's this great moment at the end of the game. I don't know, for anybody who hasn't played it, you, you finish the final boss, right? And the, the final boss is this incredibly epic battle with this giant demon that's the size of as a skyscraper, right? Spoiler alert. And um, you fight this demon on the top of a skyscraper. And then when the demon dies... The camera was going to pan around and f- sort of zoom out from you, the Doom Slayer, walking toward the edge of the skyscraper. If you imagine like the end of the original Resident Evil movie, kind of that sort of thing where Alice is walking through the street and the camera's panning back, it was kind of that sort of thing. And that still happens in the game. And I saw it and I'm like, oh, you know what would be the best thing there? is into Sandy City, right? You kill the bad guy, you turn around, the camera starts panning back and and I'm like, oh my God, I, I mocked it up and I was, I got goosebumps, it was that cool, right? And I knew Doom fans would just be like, oh my God, that's perfect. Um, so anyway, I put it together and I sent it off and it got rejected. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, why is this rejected? It's, it's, it's cool, it's solid. And they're like, no, it feels too like gamey. It feels too kind of 8-bit gamey. And I'm like, oh man, I got so frustrated at it. And um, I don't think I ended up even doing anything for the ending there. I think they ended up rejecting it and slotting in the men- uh, opening theme or something like that. E1M1, I think, went in there in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so that was one of those quick 10, 20-second mock-ups that you throw over. I was like, mm, crappy harpsichord. Uh, maybe I could do like a guitar-heavy thing, drum beat over the top of it. Okay, how's that? Uh, and that that rejected it. So um, anyway, to my great surprise, it ended up out there somehow. It was actually leaked before then because very crafty people tend to crack open these games. And yeah. the game had actually shipped with that track on the disc, on in the data. It's actually in the data, which happens sometimes. I've had that happen a few times where just something you didn't intend to get released um, is on the disc somehow. It yeah. gets built. And so somebody cracked it out and opened it up and went, oh, hey, what's this? Um, so, And that's miraculous because there's literally probably 20,000 audio files in there and WYs encodes it all. So what you're looking at is like WZ127XY question mark dash 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 dot wave or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And they'll go through like 20,000 of them and go, oh, here's a piece of music. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, that's the story from that one. Because when, when stuff does get rejected, when you uh, do they, do they, they do give you feedback, right? They do tell you why they're rejecting it. Um, or sometimes they sometimes. just, sometimes they don't and you're just like, well, what do I yeah, do? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, again, this, the person who rejects it sometimes is under a ridiculous amount of pressure as they are. And different people handle that pressure in different ways. Some mm. people are really great at sitting down and saying, I'm calm I'm going to speak to you directly for two minutes. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to know, and then I'm going to go away because that's all you need. And those people are great. That's brilliant. Other people come in and um, we describe them as like seagull managers, right? You know a seagull? Have you heard that term before, seagull managers? No, I haven't. Can you explain? Okay, so a seagull manager flies in, craps all over everything, makes a hell of a lot of noise, and then flies away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
So that can happen sometimes. You have some company go, what the hell is this? This is crap. I don't want to do this. Why did everyone want this? This is all shit. This is all shit. This is all this shit. All right, go fix it. And you're like, cool. What do I do with that? You know? But you understand that they're under a, a ridiculous amount of pressure. And, um, you know, you just go, well, obviously this isn't working for this person. So you just kind of reassess and go, okay, maybe what we'll try. And sometimes that's why it's good to do options too. Like you go, like, here's three options. Here's like a 30 seconds of this, 20 seconds of that. And here's another idea we could try. And they'll go like that, don't like that, hate that. And you're like, okay, we'll go with the, the idea that they like. Mm. Yeah. Now, question. I know obviously everything with software, but... There are rumors swirling around about Doom Guy being in Smash Brothers. Has Nintendo oh, really? approached you about doing a remix for Doom for Smash Brothers? Have you been approached at all? Or are you going to give no, me your no, poker definitely face? Not. <laughs> no, definitely not. No. Would, would, you, <laughs> would you want to do it if they approached you? How would you adapt, um, I, I suppose? I think there's, there's probably a set of circumstances that would have to occur for that to, to happen in the first place. Um, I actually don't even know how that happens. I don't know if that comes from Nintendo, um, excuse me, Nintendo side. Oh, too much. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong way. Um, I don't know if those decisions come from Nintendo side. I don't know if they come from the developer side of the, of the IP, um, or whatever. I have no idea. Um, I think it would be great. I'd love to do such a thing, but no, there's no, I haven't heard of anything. Okay. No. <laughs> Sorry to quell that one. Oh yeah. You just broke my heart, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> So you get royalties for all your Doom stuff though, right? For the all the soundtracks and everything? No. No. No, no royalties. Really? No. Yeah, definitely not. Because Marty, no. Marty gets them for Halo. Yeah, Marty's, um, Marty's probably one of the, I don't know, one of the folks from that last generation that was able to negotiate a deal that worked more in their favor. Um, depending on who you work with, uh, usually it's company policy to – um, not pay anybody royalties. Um, the reason they do that is that they've always, the big bosses always have acquisitions in mind in the future. They're always thinking, right, okay, we'd like to sell one day. Um, not everybody, I'm just making sort of general uh, generalizations here, but that's yeah, always yeah. a thing in mind when they're doing contracts. And when an acquisition occurs, they need to make sure that when they're selling their company, that they're selling everything that they own. And so if it turns out that they don't fully own some of the music or whatever, they've still got like a, a shared deal, um, that means that they've got to track you down and buy it out from you so they can then sell it to somebody else. That's pretty typical. So these days I've seen a lot with contracts. They just sort of nuke it straight from the beginning. So um, no, there's definitely no royalties from, from that stuff. I'm very surprised by that because obviously you're one of the few composers I feel that has made kind of the, the quantum leap beyond composer because you're very much in the mainstream i find i don't know about that well Gosh. compared to most composers well can you walk the, like when you've been in america for example do people know who you are can you walk the streets and oh do people that's, that's yeah it's a it's a crazy thing to to focus on or talk about i mean <laughs> you know whatever man sure it might have happened a few times sure yeah, yeah, but but <laughs> what I'm trying to uh, ask, I suppose, is you still have anonymity, right? So you you can walk the streets, you can do all your stuff, and you're still fine, right? You don't well, have people st like if stopping I, you if for I go to autographs the... or anything like that. Oh man, if I go like you know, if you go to some gaming event, sure, like there's probably yeah, going to yeah. be people there that are like so passionate that they know some of the people that that make the games that they enjoy, so that might might happen there. So. Um, it's happened a few times. It's really funny because here in Australia, it'll happen at like Aldi or Woolworths or something like that. And I'll just be pushing my <laughs> shopping trolley around and somebody will come up and tap me on the shoulder or something like that. Yeah. Um, 
I think funny enough, a lot of it seems to come from the Game Awards stuff. They're like, oh man, I saw that show that you did at the Game Awards. I'm like, ah, oh, that's cool. You know, that, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's kind of, kind of fun. So, um, I mean, it's weird because like, honestly, you just sit in the same room that you would any other day and you kind of work really, really hard on this sort of stuff. And then you surrender it to the game developers and they put it in game and out it goes. And then like you, you don't change. There's no, nothing different about you whatsoever, but all of a sudden people are like, oh wow, I really like that thing that you did. So whatever, you know. It's well, yeah, I suppose with what you're doing, I mean, you're in one of the prime positions, given what's happening with the world right now in terms of COVID, right? Because you're still in your studio. It's still just one person mainly. I mean, nothing's very much changed, I suppose, in terms of how you've you're doing your work and composing? Um, no, nothing's changed. What I have noticed, though, is a difference in what projects are getting approved and pushed forward. So um, a lot of developers are pushing bigger projects out because they, like let's take something like last of us for example like it's just such an incredibly huge complex game mm. and what they're finding out is it's very 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 difficult to make something like that when everybody's working from home it's just really really difficult to do um meetings are hard i know you can do zoom obviously and slack channels and things like that but just just you you like working in the offices there's definitely something different about it um but what's been interesting is like smaller developers i guess that have always worked from home and they might have their entire team working from home and they've always done this, you know, where they've got a team of 20 people, but they're all over the world in different places. Um, they're already set up for working from home. So those projects are getting approved. Um, publishers are going for those projects more than like the massive AAA things. Oh, right. Okay. So do you prefer doing the smaller indie stuff as opposed to the AAA? I'd imagine there's a lot more cogs in the AAA machine, right? So... Um, it's changed as over time as I've kind of been doing it. Um, there was a kind of a happy medium time where there was budgets there to do what you wanted to do, but um, they still kind of let you do what you wanted to do in a way. Um, whereas I feel with some of the most recent projects, it's a lot more sort of committee based. And that seems to be just something that naturally occurs with growth anyway. Mm. Um, that doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't always lead to a, a, a good result. The example I always pull up of is, um, do you remember the Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson finds his long lost brother, I think, and his yes, long lost brother designs cars and stuff and then yeah, Homer yeah. designs a car. Yeah. And so you end up with a Homer Simpson car, which is just this like weird cacophony of, of every idea you can think of, right? Now, yeah, it's a car, but it's just, it doesn't work. And sometimes committee-based game development can kind of end up like that a little bit. It's a bit sort of non-cohesive. Uh, but yeah, it's just different, man. Every every team's different. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do people tell you that they use your music for gym, like when they're at the gym? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've, I've, so, I've used it, I've been honestly. in gyms. I've been in gyms and I'm like sitting there trying to figure out how to do this clean or whatever and get it off the ground. And... um they've got like just some playlist happening and all of a sudden there'll be like a track come on and I'm like, Oh my God, I can't be in this gym and have that playing at the same time. <laughs> you, can't work, you can't work out to your own music. No, I never listen to my old stuff. I never go back through it. I never, never listen to it or anything. I haven't listened to any of that doom 2016 stuff. I think since I sent the album off to be um, printed on vinyl, I, mm. yeah, I never go back through it all or anything. Yeah. How did the uh, performance come about at the game awards? Did you yeah, get much so time to prep for that? Well, sorry, I missed that last bit. Uh, did you get much time to prep for it? In terms, no, of no, definitely not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we put the whole thing together in about a week, ten days, something like that. Um, so, a couple of things about that. Um, Jeff, who runs the awards, is the most passionate gamer I've ever met. He's he gets so much shit, but he's like 
Um, super, super, super passionate. It's extraordinary how much he pours his like love and heart and soul into games. It's quite crazy. And so um, he was the one that really pushed for it. He was like, oh, we really want to do this like musical performance for video games and, and we'd love to have you do some Doom tracks. And so we worked it out with Bethesda and things like that. And by then we really didn't have much time to put it together. And um, of course, when you're coming on to do anything like this, you have these like big grand ideas, but that stuff didn't happen. But um, what I, I wanted to do, which we got pretty close to, was have like a, a history of id Software games kind of represented on stage. And so I reached out to Sonic Mayhem, Sasha, who I'd met a couple of times, but uh, he did Quake 2 and he did Quake 2 when he was like 21 years old or something, right? Yeah. And I was like, dude, could you do the synth lines for me on stage? That would be just the most amazing thing if like, you know, we've got you on stage playing that sort of stuff. That'd be cool. And thankfully he said yes, which was great. Um, and then originally I reached out to Chris Vrenner to do the drums. Um, Chris was drummer for Nine Inch Nails for many, many years and he did the Doom 3 theme. And I thought it'd be so cool if like while we were doing the stuff, we had the guy that did the Doom 3 stuff on drums and we had the guy that did the Quake 2 stuff and things on, on synths. Like that'd be just the best thing. Um, sadly, Chris was like super tied up in Chicago and he couldn't get across. Um, so I reached out to Matt Halpern from uh, Periphery because um, I knew he could nail the parts just perfectly. Um, thankfully, he said yes. And then we all flew into LA. I had to fly all the way from Australia. Those guys came from different parts of the, of the US. And we had like a day of rehearsals to put it together, um, which is pretty normal. That's actually pretty generous, to be honest. Um, but what was cool about that is we went to this amazing rehearsal facility, which is like a, a compound of massive stages in warehouses. I think there was like 16 giant warehouses out in this like uh, area. And in each warehouse is a big show that's putting their show together. That's where they do it. So that's where they put, build the stages and they build all the lighting and they um, get all the rehearsals and things done. So we were slotted in between. I think we had you 2 on the left and Lady, Ga Lady Gaga on the right. Oh, and there's wow. us three rocking into this like huge warehouse. Uh, and we set some stuff up and, uh, and, and played through it a couple of times. What's cool about that facility is that they have this amazing backline facility where they have any piece of equipment you can imagine. So you can build your like Frankenstein drum kit and this crazy like amps that you want or any like set of microphones. And you're like, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And then they package it all up into a truck and then boom, off you go out and tour. It's the most amazing service. It's really cool. So we did our rehearsals there and then, um, yeah, did the show. I remember, um, I remember I purposely wanted it to feel a bit chaotic, right? And, um, Award shows have this bit of a tradition of being a bit like a bit conservative and a bit contrived and a bit like that sort of thing. And it was very much like, here is your marked X on the stage, stand there and play and don't do anything else, right? Don't move. And I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. No worries. We'll do this. And the reason they do that is so they can set their 20 cameras up on you. They can set all their 200 lights and have that pointed at you and everything looks great, right? And so we did like three rehearsals in on stage with all the camera crew to make sure they had everything good for the, for the night. This is the day of the performance, by the way. And um, I made sure for the three rehearsals, I stood there really stoic and just sort of played the parts and then finished and that was it, right? Um, and then I have a bit of a rat bag nature, if you haven't noticed. And I knew that the moment... <laughs> What I was planning would be that, like, the moment that the performance started, I'd go a bit mad with it. And that's what I did, right? The, the curtains went up, 
and we got the cue, five seconds to start, and the countdown happened. Jeff introduced us. I played the opening riff, and I took a beeline to my left and went, ran over to the left side of stage, and then back over to the right side of stage and just kept doing that. And what was cool about that is that the camera people and the lighting people had no idea that I was going to do that, and they really didn't want me to do it. Um, so that's why they're kind of like chasing the camera around, and that's why it looks a little bit more chaotic than it actually was. Yeah, but anyway, it's still, it's still, it still, it still works out well. I mean, and you feed off the audience, right? And they were loving it. So it's really funny actually because the, the audience there. I remember, I can't remember which part of. I think it was part of BFG division, and I ran down to the center of the stage, and there was literally a girl standing in the front row, and she was there on a phone like this. <laughs> And you I'll can see it on the video. It. I'll have to yeah, rewatch it. You can see it, it on the video. I kind of kneel down and I start like poking my tongue out at her while I'm playing. And she's just there on her phone. <laughs> the funniest thing, man. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another funny story about that one, right? So um, there was a performance from Ray Shemurd there, right? There was Run the Jewels, Ray Shemurd and, and us, I think, were the musical performances of the night. And while we were backstage... Um, there was this huge amount of smoke that was coming out from underneath of the door of the Reishamerd green room. Just ridiculous levels of smoke, right? And um, it was so much so that, like, um, they, they had dogs and things coming out the back there to do, like, some sniffing and stuff like that. It was pretty, like, insane levels of smoke that was happening. And um, anyway, uh, Hideo Kojima was out the back there as well. He was kind of walking around and all that sort of thing. Oh, wow. And I spoke to somebody who knew him afterwards, the audio director, Ludwig, and, um, and he said he thought um, Kojima thought that it was us all smoking up, like the Doom guys. He thought the Doom guys were like so crazy we were like smoking up in our little green room before the performance. <laughs> of course, that would fit the stereotype, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> is, um, is there any projects like or any particular game franchise you'd like to work on? If given the opportunity, oh, I'd love to do a Mortal Kombat game. That'd be really cool. Yes, I was thinking that. I was, I was actually going to ask you because I think you'd be perfect for it. Like your <laughs> style would suit it perfectly. Oh, cool. I think. I think. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that'd be cool. I love what they've done with the most recent Mortal Kombat games and the storytelling and things that they do there. That's really, yeah. really cool. So I, I'd love to do that. Um, I'm doing a horror thing at the moment, which is a lot of fun. Um, I'm also doing a, a game for a wonderful creative developer. Um, uh, and uh, it's all set in this like Soviet vision of the future. And it's really fun because under contract, I'm required to use my Soviet synthesizers. Like I have to use them under contract, right? So, um, so that one's a lot of fun. I like things like that that are like creatively interesting. That's kind of fun to do. Yeah. Um, how, how, much, how much of uh, stuff that you do, any of your projects that you approach people and how much of it is people approaching you? Oh, that's interesting. I... I don't know if I've really reached out to people for a while. There was certainly a time when I, I did. I might reach out to them and say, hey, it'd be really, really cool if we worked on something together. That would be kind of fun. But these days, it's really difficult to find out who to reach to. Um, we used to do things like go to GDC in San Francisco and you'd meet the developers and you'd, you'd just start chatting with them and things like that and you'd build a relationship there. Um, but now with COVID and stuff like that, obviously there's no GDC. So there's a lot less of that sort of stuff happening. Um, there's a lot that will just kind of reach out. I'll just get an email one day and they're like, Hey, we're working on a game. We'd like to talk to you about some of the music and things. Um, so yeah, it can be, I don't know. Each project honestly is completely different. So it happens in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Cause I'm wondering how you'd adapt when it comes to stuff like that. I mean, if you can't meet people in person, I mean, I heard mm. E3 is digital this year. Right. Um, and I don't even know. I mean, if you're a publisher, why would you even use E3 when you can just do your own 
mm-hmm. event. So yeah. I imagine, I mean, who knows when, how long this is going to go on for in terms of COVID. So like, how would you, how would you deal with that? I mean, do you get, is this on a daily thing that you'd get someone wanting you to work on something? Oh, not daily. No, it probably, no. it's, it's a couple of times a year. I mean, there's yeah. not enough um, games happening. There's not like 365 <laughs> of them happening or whatever. Um, certainly not like that. Yeah. Um, no, it just, it just happens occasionally. These, honestly, these games are huge and they take so many people and so many hours and so many resources. And I can tell you it's a miracle when any game comes out because the amount of adversity that it faces along the way is, is extraordinary. So any game that comes out is a success. If it's good, oh man, that's, that's biblical. There it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you hear it all the time in the gaming industry about crunch, right? I mean, it's... Mm down to the wire seems like yeah. all the time and i mean it's very very hard industry so i have a lot of respect i mean the music industry is hard in the combination yeah. with gaming uh the gaming industry so yeah double double respect because it <laughs> it would be hard i mean i still can't believe that you've sent demos and like they get rejected i find that oh yeah bizarre. that happens all the time i um i've probably failed more <clears throat> gosh i'm so sorry i'm dying over here <clears throat> you're practicing i made this like really crazy strong try this morning it's all going down the wrong way anyway um, yeah, so excuse me. I, um, yeah, I've, I've honestly, I've failed more demos than I have, uh, gotten jobs. I think typically what happens is you get situations where people just really aren't quite sure what they want. And so they'll ask 20 people, like, what sort of music do you want to do for this game? And, you know, when you're, when you're on a, a, a call like that and you've just got so many other people that are putting their great ideas together and, and honestly, it's all the best people that you can imagine, like all the, all the amazing people that are working in games. Like they're the ones that you're kind of competing against to get these, these projects. Um, and I'm the first to admit that the stuff that I do is really not for every game. It's really not for everybody. Um, so, you know, um, I think typically they want stuff that's, um, you know, a little bit, uh, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, typical, I guess, maybe or something like that. I don't know. Not so loud yeah, and offensive yeah. or something. But yes. like you have a, you have a very kind of a signature sound. I mean, actually, and even your mixing is signature as well. Like I could listen to a piece and I could probably know that it's a Mick Gordon track just from the mixing. So there's a very, you have a certain style uh, and it's it seems to work for you thus far. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Yeah, but like, thank like you. say with um, Saber Wolf's theme in uh, Killeristic, right? I mean, that's kind of a st- something you'd probably hear in like Bloodborne or some type of, right. which, which I think a lot of people forget right i think they sometimes think of you as like the middle guy even right. though you can do a lot of different stuff yeah do you get do you get like frustrated do you ever get pigeonholed as a result um i i really i kind of actively move away from stuff i don't want to do so after doom there was obviously a lot of like hey we really want eight string guitars and double kick drums in our game and it's like yeah that's cool but i kind of not only do I not really want to do that, I kind of feel that that belongs in that franchise because we did a lot of work to get to that point for that franchise. And I feel that you and your project needs an equivalent amount of work to come up with a unique sound for your game that makes it stand on its own. The last thing you want is for something to come out and everybody goes, oh, he's just doing that same Doom thing again, but it's in this game or whatever. So um, I work really, really hard. I think as we were talking about with the Killer Instinct thing before, like, the most important thing for me in any project is to really define something that's unique and special for that project. And I don't even think of like in terms of genres or like music genres or anything like that when starting a project. It's all about what can we do musically to represent the game in the most purest, best form. So you can't just take 
a process that we went through for another project, say Doom, and then just give it to to another another game. It just it's it just doesn't work. It needs its own unique voice, you know. Mm. Would you ever want to do anything for television or film at some point? Um, you, I, one thing I've been really enjoying a lot more now is more music industry stuff. So moving into a lot more like producing yeah. bands and things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so right. Yeah. I've yeah. Actually been, mm. Yeah. Because um, so I've you been did actually, one, Yeah. You did one recently, eh? Uh, yeah, so I helped out a little bit on um, on Bring Me the Horizons' latest uh, awesome EP, which is called uh, Posthuman Survival Horror, uh, which is really cool. So yeah, that was great. That was really really cool. Just working with those guys, Ollie and Jordan. Ollie's a singer, and Jordan's um, uh, kind of like main producer and things behind that. And they they're just brilliant at what they do. Um, watching Jordan write, well, watching Ollie and Jordan write tracks was just mind blowing. How they just focus so hard and like just having the most perfect hook in two bars, right? This, this is the most perfect thing. Whereas in games, you're like, okay, move on, next, 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 next. And they're like, no, this this chorus needs to be the best it can possibly be. And so that stuff was really, really cool. Um, producing an album for Sony next with a band is one of my favorite bands at the moment. So um, uh, uh, so that's a lot of fun. Um, nice. Doing that sort of stuff, I kind of enjoy a lot more. The film and TV stuff's really, really great, but film itself is in a really weird position right now. Um, and and TV's kind of kind of fun. I guess it's kind of all where TV is at at the moment. Again, it depends on the project, depends on the people, depends on the creativity creativity behind it. Um, I was asked to do the music for the recent Doom film that I think came out last year, the Doom Annihilation. I think it was called. Um, but, oh really? Uh, yeah, but uh, I was I was busy working on Doom Eternal and things like that. And it didn't quite work out. So you know, those sort of things pop up every now and then. But yeah. Yeah, because is there is there similarities, or what are the similarities and the differences between, say, uh, working on music for with a band, for example, mm-hmm. as opposed to doing a soundtrack for um, a, a game? Yeah, so there's probably a couple of like really significant differences. Number one is like what we all do is identical, right? Like we're all working with the same plugins and the same door, the same like you know PC or Mac based setup. Um, we're all writing music in the same way. We're all using the same notes. Like it's all the same. It's identical, whether it's film, TV, music, video games, whatever, classical, it's all the same. Um, Where video games differs is in the interactive side of it. And that's very unique to video games where the music itself needs to be broken apart in a specific way so it works in the game. Uh, And that's very unique to games. And honestly, that's probably 20, 30, 40% of the process is getting it to work correctly in the game when you're actually playing. so because you need to dedicate more resources to that process, some of the music stuff gets pushed aside a little bit because you, you just sort of wrap it up so you can get to that stage. Um, the best, I noticed myself when I was doing video game projects that the, the part that I really looked forward to more than anything else was doing the soundtrack because the soundtrack was finally the opportunity where I could break open all of those songs again and craft a song out of it, you know. When you write pieces for a video game, it's like a 20-minute session and there's all sorts of things all happening. It's not a one song. And so when it comes time to do the album, it gives you an opportunity to bring it together to make a song out of it. And I really enjoyed that aspect, especially with Killer Instinct and things like that. It was so much fun. And so moving more into like the production side of it, as in producing bands, I can focus more on that stuff, you know, getting the kick and the bass and the, how it goes into the chorus and when the bridge kicks out, like it's just perfect, right? You just spend so much time getting it as good as you possibly can. And I quite enjoy that aspect of it for sure. Mm. One one last question before obviously I wrap up, but I, you use a lot of choirs. I, I know in Killer Instinct, there's a fair amount of choirs used 
and in Dermot Turnall and the the different languages. I mean, it wasn't uh, Spinal Steam. It's is it Swiss or Swedish? Swedish yeah, 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 yeah. Did you get someone to write it, or did you, mm. or did you have some part in, in actually writing what they sing? Yeah, no. So with Spinal, um, I worked with my buddy Pontus, who's a Swedish guy. He's obviously, you know, the weirdest thing when you go to Sweden is you, you try to go practice your Swedish, but when you're ever speaking to Swedish person, they just flip to English like that when they realize that, you know, Swedish isn't your native language. <laughs> and so it's really difficult to practice. Anyway, so yeah, um, uh, Pontus, who's a buddy of mine, we've known each other for a long time. I met him at GDC one year. And so um, with Spinal's theme, I know I wanted it to be um, they wanted it to be pirates, right? Because it's a skeleton pirate. And I'm like, well, that's kind of cool, but like Pirates of the Caribbean is a really big thing at the time. So we don't want it to be like that. We don't want it to be like a Pirates of the Caribbean ripoff. So what's a pirate? Well, a pirate cruises around in a ship and, and goes and takes things from other countries that, you know, maybe they want. So who else did that? Well, Vikings, right? Vikings did that. So let's make him like a Swedish pirate, like a Swedish Viking, right? And well, if we're going to do that, how do we get the Swedishness across? And of course, we're going to have to li have the lyrics in Swedish. So I reached out to Pontus and I'm like, man, I've got this track. Um, this is the melody line. Um, can you write some lyrics and then we'll record it? And we recorded it with like 10 Swedish guys in Gothenburg, um, which was incredible. That was a lot wow. of fun. It was recorded in an old gymnasium in the middle of winter. It was awesome. Anyway, um, so he said, well, Vikings, like they didn't really do much. Like essentially they just ate mushrooms and killed people. And I'm like, that's great. Let's make that the lyrics. And so the third verse is literally about them eating mushrooms and killing people. But only <laughs> Swedish people would know that, right? <laughs> well, well, more people will no doubt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got something cool I'll show you. Actually, let me just grab it. This is from Spinal. I don't know if you've been able to see that. I don't know if you've been able to see this sitting up the back there. Oh. But I've, I've talked a lot about this in the past, but I've never actually shown it off to anybody. Um, so this I originally got for Spinal's theme. And I also used it recently in Doom Eternal. And um, this is it here. It's called a Kangling. And um, it's, a, it's a flute. It's traditionally a uh, Tibetan flute to worship, uh, well, I don't know, like um, respect the dead you would say. And I was looking for something really, really unique and different for Spinal's theme. And the opening has this horn sound when the battle starts, when the, when the match starts. And that horn sound comes from this exact instrument here. So this is a Tibetan Kangling. So you can probably make out what it is just by looking at it there. But essentially, that's the way it would sit on your body. And so your kneecap sits there yeah. and your shin bone would come down there. And that part there attaches to sockets and things in your pelvis. So that there is the kangling from both spinal seam and doom eternal. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Is it because um, I know Robin Beanland when he did the original theme for spinal, it sounded like he was banging like bones or, or something like that. Mm. Is that is that something similar that you did when you were doing spinal theme? It's funny with that. I analyzed his theme. I analyzed all of Robin's music so yeah. much, of course, mm. as you can imagine. Such a yeah. huge fan of everything those guys did. And um, when I was doing Spinal's theme, I realized really quickly that it needed that bone xylophone sound um, to, to be kind of legitimate, to actually feel like Spinal's theme. And I tried everything. I tried all of these uh, sort of xylophone sounds and things that I could find, but nothing really sounded like the one that Robin had used. So I ended up actually sampling a tiny little segment of his track where there was like a clear hit of that xylophone with nothing else there. 
And I just took that and that the, the xylophone sound in Spinal Steam is literally the same as Robin's because I just sampled that one a little bit and turned it into an instrument. Yeah, I was wondering if you sampled it because I'm like, I'm pretty sure this sounds exactly the same as the original. Yeah, I sampled that. The other thing I sampled for Killer Instinct was the pick scrape sound for uh, Cinder's theme. I remember Cinder's theme on the original Killer Instinct game when the camera came into the level, there was this awesome like, right, pick scrape sound. And I tried recording so many different types of pick scrapes, but everything just sounded so corny. I just couldn't get it right. So I ended up just taking that little bit and putting it over the top of the track. So yeah, I took that. Sometimes you just got it. Sometimes there was something beautiful about the samplers and the sounds that they used back then that had this sort of certain quality that you just can't remake these days. So yeah, if you're under a deadline, you, instead of remaking it, just go grab, grab it from the source, you know, especially if you're allowed to, which I was then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because how do you decide when to keep something close to the original and when to kind of go off and do its own thing? Like, obviously, with Cinder's theme, you kept pretty close to the original. I mean, I think the original was kind of like the perfect template for you anyway, because I think it was fits your style perfectly right but as opposed to something like bfg division where you chucked in like uh waltz of the demons like yeah so how do you yeah. decide when to implement it and how much to implement it's a and case when to go by case situation i'm such a fan when there is a remake or a new vamp or something like i've been really fortunate in the game industry to work on a lot of 90s franchises so killer instinct wolfenstein uh doom etc so i've been faced with this question a lot and there's no strict answer, but a lot of it is just how legitimate can we make it? Like, does it feel like it's meant to feel like? And I feel because of my nostalgia with those things that it needs to feel a certain way. I would not want to play a Doom game that did not have E1M1 in it somewhere. I just need to hear that in, for in, in my mind for it to be a Doom game. Um, same on Killer Instinct and things like that. There were so many melodies and things that I could just bring back and then people can go, oh yes, this is a Killer Instinct thing. Um, if I go see a Terminator film or whatever, I need to hear that Bradford L Terminator theme in order for it to, to feel like a Terminator thing for me. It needs to feel like, if you're going to go watch an Indiana Jones film, it needs to have that theme to feel like Indiana Jones. You realize that these themes are a character in that franchise just as much as any other character, such as Arnold Schwarzenegger or Indy, right? They are part of the franchise. So a lot of it is that, a lot of it is sort of just, you know, it doesn't feel legitimate. And when you're robbing something from the past, it's just a surefire way that you're going to get there when you need to get there rather than do something else. Mm. Uh, Cinder's an interesting one because the melody that comes in, um, I always felt I could hear a second melody in my head. And whenever I used to listen to the song, I could, even when I was a kid, I could hear a second melody. It always felt like it was just ending too quickly. They'd play the main melody, da, da, da. Right, that bit. And when that finished, I always felt that there was a second part and I got an opportunity to be like, okay, I'm going to get that down now and get it out of my head. So that's why that melody just extends a little bit because I always heard that. So yeah, case by case. Mm. I'm supposed to be talking to Robin maybe later on in the year. So I'll ask him if he originally had a second melody. I'll find out for you. Yeah, do that actually. <laughs> I haven't spoken to Robin. I spoke to Robin a little bit on, um, on Killer Instinct and he sent me a whole series of Pro Tools sessions that were captured from DAT tapes from the original Killer Instinct sessions that they did. Um, and it's amazing because there's all the like sound effect recordings and things that they've done. Oh, and really? They were so low budget. I think he told me they were recording under a mattress at the end of a hallway and they just stuck a microphone and the person in the, under that mattress and got them to do stuff, right? Um, and it's amazing because you can hear them setting the mattress up and setting the microphone up and the person on the mic was probably just somebody that worked in the office. And 
And they're like, okay, we need you to be like a ninja. So can you say like, hiya? And she'd be like, hiya. And you're like, oh my God, I've heard that sound there so many times. And that right there is the moment that it was recorded. So that was mind blowing for me that he still has that stuff. It's cool. Because did you have to learn the music by ear or did he, did he already provide you with all the notes and everything as well? Oh, I know. It's just, yeah. Just, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. that's, yeah. that's a true like- musician right there. <laughs> uh, well, I feel that's, it's funny. I feel that's like, that's like a 101 skill. Um, well, so you'd be like surprised. Bring me the horizon and stuff like that. Jordan um, just sends me a two mix, right? And it's, yep. you don't go back to him and say, oh, what key is it? You know, what, what tempo is it? What's, what's the notes? Can you send me the MIDI files? It's like, if you need to ask that, you're, that's not the job. So the first job's always just transcribing everything, but mm. um uh, just getting it all down, yeah. But no, there was there was nothing. I remember the xylophone part in um, Spinal's theme took me a little bit to try and figure out. I couldn't actually quite figure out what he was doing there, so it took a bit to, to get that down. Um, but yeah, nothing super complex, yeah. Cool. Well, hey, Mick, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you're Thanks a real so much busy- for the time, dude. Yeah, yeah, I, I really <laughs> much appreciate it. It's cool to talk to someone from this side of the world, you know. Two countries that are... Yeah, containing COVID, you know, we're handling it pretty well. <laughs> so I can't wait to get back to New Zealand. I love traveling to New Zealand. It's so much fun. Uh, yeah. And, um, oh, well, if you, if you need help with anything, let me know. I'll, I'll do what I can. I am sure, hoping man. to move to Brisbane at some point. So ah, hit me up yeah. when you come here, dude. That'll yeah, be great. Yeah, for sure. Cool. <laughs> man, so thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate doing this. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So anyway, you're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, sure, everything. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, let's show everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Support the bro, Mick. He is the man. And if you haven't even played the games, just go listen to his soundtracks because they are awesome. And you'll see what I mean in regards to the mixing as well. Cool. All right, everyone. Stay safe. 